see you guys. Well, we've been in a series called Seven Letters, and um, the seven letters come from the book of Revelation, where Jesus dictates the letters to John, the apostle John, and he writes them down. And the letters are are written to seven churches. So we've been looking at these letters uh, that's why we have this nice handy-dandy mailbox. So we're going to grab the letter that's uh, addressing the church today. Uh, wouldn't you know, it's Sardis. So the letter that Jesus speaks to this church called Sardis, we're going to talk about today. And we've been looking at these letters and trying to identify what is it? What is it that Jesus is saying to us? What did he say to them? And what is, it, what is being said to us? Through that letter, because um, he didn't include these letters in the Bible so that we could look at it historically, merely historically. There's relevancy to us today. There's meaning for us today. And so we're, uh, we're seeking to discover that. Oh my goodness. I think I ate too much turkey. I've got this, I've got this yawn coming on. Oh. Excuse me. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, well, we want to we start off by just talking about this city, Sardis. Did you guys enjoy Thanksgiving? I hope you had an amazing Thanksgiving. Yeah? I hope you were blessed and enjoyed family and all that. Um, this city, Sardis, is, if, you, if we display the map here, we have a map. You'll see that really the churches that Jesus spoke Spoke about, spoke about were essentially in sequence. Um, he spoke to Ephesus first, then Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, and today we're we're talking about Sardis. And they're all found these cities. These are letters to churches, the churches of the city that are located all in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. And you can still, even to this day, find the ruins from the days that of when Jesus spoke to these churches. And so this, this uh, city, Sardis, was noted for its great wealth. I mean, opulence, abundance. They were rich in minerals, especially gold and silver. So um, it was just a, a beautifully well-developed city. The architecture, the, the, the columns, and, and all the, the wonder was, was present in this city. We looked at a city last week that was a lot more like poor or less, less uh, provided for, if you will, less, less rich in its display of what they had. This, this city was, was known for being so rich. In fact, they, this city um, historically was, was known to be the first city that um, minted gold and silver coins. Because they just had so much of it, they minted gold and silver coins as, as a form of, of currency. And so they were also famous for wool and textile and jewelry as a result of, of being so rich in minerals. And um, over time, they had so much, as you could imagine, it, it, it had an impact on the people of the city and especially on the church where there resulted, what the result was, was um, decay, moral decay, depravity. 
uh, dilapidation. Things just ended up going, uh, uh, just falling to the wayside as far as importance goes, especially with the church. But even physically in that city, they, they endured an earthquake which began to destroy the foundations of the city. And this city was uh, the city proper or, or what I would call the citadel, the, the place that was, was set apart, was set on this high hill. We, we have a picture of the ruins, which is it's just stunning. It's set on a high hill, um, so high that you couldn't, you couldn't scale it. So it was a safe place. It was a, a defensive posture. Geographically, they were put in a very safe place. And the Persians wanted to attack the city Sardis. They wanted to take it over because of all the riches that were found in this city. And so they were watching, they, were, they would just keep watch of the city. In fact, as they attempted to attack, everyone withdrew and went to the Acropolis, the high place, into this citadel um, to be protected because you couldn't, you couldn't climb up there easily. And as you were climbing up, you'd, they would defend themselves. Well, lo- legend has it that, and historically, there's this story of a soldier leaning over the edge of uh, the wall there, and his helmet fell off. Now, meanwhile, the Persians, the Persian army had spies, and they're watching this city. They're trying to figure out a way to, to break into the city. It was, it was deemed, or at least considered in that day, pretty much impenetrable. You, you couldn't get in because of these walls that were, uh, these natural walls that were essentially straight up. They went straight vertical, the rock structure and all that stuff. So, so the king and all his people withdrew to the citadel for safety purposes because they were f- under threat of this Persian army. And as the soldier leans over the side, his, his helmet falls. And, and so he, not feeling any threat, cl- climbs down, you know, he goes down off the wall to get to retrieve his helmet. But the mistake he made was he entered through this this crevice into the city that was put there by an by a, um, earthquake that had occurred, and they never repaired it. And the Persians are like, we got them. We know now how to enter this impenetrable city. There was this, this way to get in, and the soldier revealed it to the Persian army. And so at night, while all the people of Sardis are sleeping, the Persian army invades this city. And when they awoke the next morning, they had been invaded and they were under uh, attack by these, this Persian army. And they were taken because of the negligence of that idiotic soldier. <laughs> no, let me just go back on that. But seriously, like, it, 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 there, was, there was just such a casual, there was such a casual and comfortable perspective that... Um, in, in the entire city, you're going to see in this, the scripture that there were problems that we don't see even closely related to the other churches. So I want to read, starting in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. You guys aren't offended because I said idiotic, are you? All right, we got to get past that stuff, okay? If you are, we could talk later. All right, so in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, to the angel of the church in Sardis write. And this is literally how Jesus started all of these letters 
The only thing that changed was the, the addressee or the city that was being addressed. So this one is Sardis. And Jesus said, these are the words of Jesus, the one who was glorified, who revealed himself to John the Apostle. He says, these are the words who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And I'll come back to that. I know your deeds, he says. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Now, I don't know. When I stop right there, we could talk about that for the rest of the morning. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now, I don't know any church that would receive that kind of statement from Jesus well. You're dead. That's a dead church. So Jesus goes on to say, Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. So here we find ourselves in this, uh, looking at this city called Sardis. Now Jesus has, he identifies himself and he has some very, very strong words. And he starts off by saying that the church had a past reputation. They, the perception of this city was that they were alive. The perception was that there was all, it was a hub of activity and especially this church. Now, I don't know how the gospel got to this city, but it must have been a vibrant church at one point in time. It must have been a church that was thriving. It must have been a church that was active in impacting the entire city and even regions around the city. But something happened. Something happened that, that caused a change. And, and nowhere in the world in that day is there a better comparison of what was a past or former glory than this city. So, again, the opulence, the riches, the, the thriving uh, church, but something happened. I think they got comfortable. I, I think they settled in because, you know, as a city proper, they had no worries. They, they would, they would um, go back to their citadel when they felt threatened or attacked. And there's, think of the mindset, oh, we don't have to worry about it. No one can get here. There's, there's no problem. You just go back. We'll, we'll stay in here until the threatening armies go back to their homes because they know they can't attack us. But also what is not said about this city is that like, it was, like the other cities that we've covered, this is the fifth in this message series, the other cities were under severe persecution. I mean, pressure against their faith. The other cities had idolatry and witchcraft and, and demonic worship um, all around them. It's not said about this city. There, there was no threat. There was no threat to, to the people of the city because of the way they can, they can withdraw to the citadel. But there's also no threat to the church. They weren't labeled poor. Obviously, they weren't poor at all. Um, they, they didn't have... Um, um, Noted moral failures that Jesus identified in other churches. I mean, they were just in cruise control. Everything was good. And do you know when everything's good, not everything is good. Because when, when everything is good, it's easy to get comfortable. It's easy to stop pressing in. It's easy to stop going after the things of God. It was, it was a dry church. It was, it was known as the sleeping church. They, they were asleep. 
when they had the opportunity to be alive and awake and, and uh, impacting the region, they had fallen asleep. Jesus called them dead. Now, uh, I, I want to distinguish sleeping, a sleeping uh, church from, from um, you, you know, like when... Spiritually, you go through stuff. You understand what I'm saying? And there's seasons of like you're you're totally passionate and pressing into God and and in love with God. There's other seasons, frankly, where it's a dry place. Does anyone anyone relate to that at all? Okay, yeah, I, I I've been through my my periods of dryness in life, and it happens to us, you know. And I want to distinguish this, this sleeping or dead from dryness. Dryness, I would describe as a place where you recognize where you're at. You recognize something's wrong inside. You recognize that there's a, a lack or a deficiency. And, and not only do you recognize it, but you, you take the actions to change that. You know, dead or sleeping is, you don't even recognize it. You don't even realize it. You're, you're, just, you're just gone spiritually. And there's n- because you don't recognize it, you don't take actions. You don't go after God. You don't press into God. You don't set aside time to say, I need, I need, to, I need to get rid of this. I'm, just, there's been a, I'm in, a, in a season of dryness. I'm in, a, I'm in a season where something's not right spiritually. And I'm going to press in until I, I get my breakthrough. You know, dryness is, I think, a part of the spiritual journey that we're on. Dryness is a part of something that we, that we just experience. You know, you could see David crying out to God in the Psalms. You could see David say, God, where are you? Do you hear me? Would you, would you speak to me? Why, are my, why, oh my soul, are you so downcast? What, what is going on inside of me? I, I just don't understand. But, but you see, he's expressing himself to God. There's, there's an awareness of where he's at. Uh, conversely, being dead or sleeping, in essence, signifies that you don't even know where you're at. You're just like, it's like sleepwalking. Have you ever seen a sleepwalker? In transparency, how many have ever sleptwalked personally? You sleptwalk. Okay. Now, I, I've seen sleepwalkers, and it's so strange, you know? And no, no condemnation. I've, I've just seen it, though. My, my nephew used to sleepwalk. And, you know... Um, he, he would get up and walk, and his eyes are open, and, and you think everything's normal. Like, you could even talk to him, and there's times that he would talk back. But he's not. It's, this is what Jesus is describing as his church. Like, your body's moving. There's actions being taken, but, but you're not really there. You understand? Like, there's, there's no passion. There's a deadness. There's, there's, there's something that's not alive in you. So your, your body's working, your mind, we don't know what's going on in a sleepwalker's mind. But their spirit is just like, uh, you know, as it relates to the church, the spirit is not active. There's, there's a deadness. And this is what Jesus is describing to the church. I, I think, Jesus didn't use this word, but I would propose that the church had become spiritually lazy. They'd become spiritually complacent, spiritually comfortable. And um, Jesus says, wake up. This is his message to the church in Sardis. I, I remember um, years ago, and I know I've shared this story. It's been a while. 
But years ago, there was a, a minister that came. I think his, he was from Egypt. And he didn't come to this church, but he came and there was, there was a church that gathered several of the ministers from the area. And he spoke. And after he was done speaking, one of, one of the pastors said, Hey, what would you say, now that you've been here a little bit and you've experienced, you've experienced America and you know it's different from where you're at, what would you say to the church in America? What would you say to pastors in America? And like, he didn't even hesitate. It was, it was already a thought that he had processed. It was already a thought that he had dealt with. And he says, America is a sleeping giant. America is a sleeping giant. All the world looks at America and Christianity in America as, as the, the father and the mother of um, spiritual churches throughout the world. But somehow our father and mother has, has abandoned their place, their position. You know, they're, they're there, but they're not really fulfilling the role of a father and mother. And, and the church in America has the ability to do so much and it impacts so much of the world, but somehow it's fallen asleep. Somehow it's sort of just backed off from its passions and its purposes and its mission and really has become self-focused and inwardly focused. And in the world, the world who had America, the church in America, as its spiritual mother and father, is now lacking the spiritual parents they need. This is what he said, and it just, it's, it, it just like pierced my heart. I'm like, wow, that is so sad. It's so sad that, uh, and if this is true, which I believe there's some truth to what this guy is saying, that we, it, it's easy to become comfortable. You know, you, you take the foot off the gas when, and, you, and you go into cruise control spiritually. Like when things, when, when there's not a reason to go hard after God, you know, seemingly, there's not a reason to, to press into God. There's not a reason to cry out to God. It's just like, why? I'm a Christian. I, I'm okay. Why, why, why do I need to press in so much? And, and what happens is, little by little, step by step, moment by moment, the fade begins. The fade begins and problems begin to happen in the church. I believe this is what is represented in Sardis. I believe this is what we begin to, to see as we read about Sardis. So what do you do when your reputation, when your reputation um, is, is really not reflecting reality anymore? Because this is what Jesus said. He said, you know, you, you're, the perception of, of who you are is that you're really alive, but in fact you're dead. The reputation that you carry is, is that, man, there's stuff happening there. You know, God is moving. But really, it's a thing of the past. I remember this, this restaurant. In fact, I meant to text you, honey. But what was that burger place that was down near Walmart? That, Chi Burger, Chi Burger. We used to love that place. I mean, onion rings, massive and I mean, the burgers were the best. And we would go, we probably only made it there three times, but like it was legendary in our family, to our family. We loved Cheeburger, Cheeburger, right across from Walmart. And I mean, that thing, we would tell everyone about it. It, it had a good reputation according to us. But before you know it, that place is gone. I, I think they had tax issues or 
something, something happened. And then there was this other place across the street from it called Rio Grande. Same thing. We love Mexican food as a family. And, you know, we went there a few times. We sent people there. We talked about it. Authentic Mexican food is like the best. And wouldn't you know it, before you know, it is gone. And so the reputation still stood out there until people either heard that they had shut down or people went and saw that they were shut down. And this is what Jesus is saying to the church. It's sad when it's a restaurant, but it's tragic when it's a church. It's tragic when it's a church, you know? Um, so, so Jesus is, is addressing this church, and at the core, a church is supposed to be alive, right? I mean, God dwells there. It's the, it's the presence of God. It's the people of God. It's the carriers of the presence of God. A church is supposed to be alive. There's supposed to be passion and life and joy and hope and faith and change and fruit. And all this stuff's supposed to be happening in a church. But somehow it faded into nothingness, this church Sardis. It, it faded into uh, irrelevance. And so what do you do when your reputation outpaces your reality? And I think this is reflective of the church in America. Um, Statistics show about 3,500 churches every year close their doors. Every year in America. Actually, North America. About 3,500 churches every year. That tells me there's a problem, right? Right? And uh, 80% of all churches in North America are either plateaued or declining in number. So we we see that what what Jesus spoke to Sardis could be happening. Could be happening. But but the cool thing is Jesus said, in essence, it's not over. Wake up. It's, it's, It's time to wake up. Because you've been slumbering, you've been sleeping. But as a church, if you wake up, it's not over. And so I want to talk about this because I think it's so important to us. I think this message is a great message to the Church of America. I think it's a great message because um, what do you do? What, what, are the, what are the causes or the reasons when a church is in danger of death, you know? If you ever watch CSI, I know some people, that's like one of their favorite shows, the investigation, the, the process of figuring things out and identifying facts and And finding the cause. What would it look like if you did an autopsy on dying churches? I want to talk about that for a moment. I want to talk about that for a moment. I think you'd find a few common things. And I'm only telling you this because you say, well, what does it have to do? A church. What does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with my life? Well, if the church is lethargic, if the church is sleeping, that means people are sleeping, right? That means there's something about the body that has been affected that has caused the church to get Jesus' attention, right? Jesus is now aware, which he's always aware. He walks among his churches, and he, he identifies what is it that we, we have to correct. What is it? We've gotten off mission. We, what is it that we have to... Uh, reverse or change to be impacting, you know? Because he said things like, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So uh, we can't blame the devil because we carry the spirit of God. 
right? We, we can't, well, the devil's wreaking havoc. No, the church is not doing what they're supposed to do, right? He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Prevail is, this, it gives this, this picture in our mind of being able to withstand the force of the church in the world. The church is a force. The church is powerful. The church has been given authority, right? There's, there's all kinds of things that God has called us to do uh, corporately and individually that, that the gates of hell cannot withstand, right? And so so we, we can't start to, well, you know, I'm busy. I'm tired. I just... I don't know, too much tryptophan this weekend. I just don't think it flies. I, I don't think it works. So, so Jesus, he is, he is fiercely passionate about his church. He's fiercely passionate about the church accomplishing the mission. So if you were to do an op- autopsy on a dying church, what would you find? I think... I'll give you four. There's probably about 100 different things that you could find. Number one, the Spirit has left the building. In verse 1, in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. Now, what does that mean? Are there seven different Holy Spirits? No, there's not. There's one Holy Spirit. But there's different functions of the Spirit of God. And the reality is when the Spirit has left the building, you know it. You know, the, the functioning of the Spirit. When, when we start to think that we can do it on our own, absent of the Holy Spirit, we're in trouble. You know? And so the seven spirits of God, in Isaiah 11 too, it gives us this glimpse of what that is. <coughs> In Isaiah 11, 2, it says, the Spirit of the Lord. I want you to count with me. Um, so, he is the Spirit of the Lord. We'll rest on him, speaking of Jesus, right? He is the Spirit of the Lord. He is the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding. He's the Spirit of counsel and of might. He's the Spirit of, the, of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So, when the Spirit is functioning, the church is operating in knowledge, operating in fear of the Lord, operating in the power of counsel and might and understanding and wisdom. You see what I'm saying? Like when when that's absent, the church is in trouble. When that's absent, something has happened. Maybe the Holy Spirit's been grieved. Maybe, Maybe we've ignored promptings of the Holy Spirit as a church in North America, and because of that, the Holy Spirit's grieved. And and what we do to reverse that is repent, right? Maybe individually, we said no one too many times to the Holy Spirit, and he's like, okay, well, until you really want me here, I'm not going to be here in our lives. Until you want me in your home, I'm not going to be in your home the way you want me in your, until you really need me. And this really gets to the core of, of, of a problem, because we really need the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The number seven is a number that... Uh, carries the idea of it completeness or fullness or wholeness. And so when we talk about the seven spirits of God, it's, it's the Holy Spirit functioning in, in entirety or in his completeness, 
right? We, we give him full reign. We give him full ability to do what he does. And so um, that, that brings us to the questions like this. Are, am I personally filled with the Spirit today? You know, the Bible says, be filled with the Spirit. Am I functioning in the fullness of God? Have I been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Am I demonstrating fruit of the Spirit? You see, what happens when we get comfortable is we have the mindset we've already got it all, and we need no more. We don't, I, I don't need any more. I've already got what I need. I'm saved. I've got a great church family. We're happy. Uh, you know, uh, God moves, and I see it and experience it. I've even seen him heal people when I prayed for them. I don't, I don't need anything else. Right? I, I mean, the, it's easy to settle in to a place of no longer hungering. Full people aren't, aren't like, desperate to get fed. Right? But it's perception. It's the perception of being full. Or I have enough. When the reality is there's so much more. And so these questions, you know, am I full of the Spirit today? Or am I, am I functioning more in the flesh? You know? Am I, am I operating by the fruit of the Spirit? Am I operating in the power of the Spirit? So when the Spirit has left the building, we're in trouble. So I think that's one of the things that you'd find in a dying church. Um, secondly, there's no passion for prayer. When a church is dying, prayer, uh, you know, Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. When there's no passion for prayer, it's to me symbolic of a church that doesn't realize that they need more from God. Now, there has been a wonderful grassroots movement of prayer here at this church. Monday mornings, people just randomly started getting together and interceding and praying. It was happening during the summer on Wednesday nights. Um, Sunday mornings before, before service, down in the prayer room we pray. Um, actually, one of the things that I'm very excited about is we're going to start off 2000, 2020 um, in, in a season of fair, prayer and fasting. How many is excited about that? Yeah, don't lie about that either. <laughs> prayer and fasting. F- fasting. <laughs> We're going to be going after God as a church. We're going to have opportunities. My heart is daily. I hope that we can work that out, but my heart is daily to gather together and, and pray and seek the face of God and start 2020 off. I believe it's just a changing of a new season for the church. I feel like God spoke to me and said, 2020 is the year of the beginning of fruitfulness. Now, I've never, had, I've never really gotten those kind of things from God before, but I, I, I saw a, a plant sprouting. I had this picture in my spirit of a plant sprouting. It's the beginning of beginnings. It's a, it's a new day. It's a new day for us individually. It's a new day for the church, and I feel like it's the launching of something great. So I'm very excited about it, and we're going to kick it off with prayer and fasting, and, and we'll talk more about that as, as time unfolds. So there, the Spirit has left the building. What would you find to die in dying churches? The Spirit has left the building. Um, prayer or a passion for prayer is, is gone. The third thing is there's less love for the Word of God. So we, we try and, you know, it's, it's easy to manipulate the Word of God to say what you want it to say. But let me, let me take you to 2 Timothy, 
Chapter 4, verse 3. This is what 2 Timothy says. Paul's writing to Timothy. He says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, another translation would say itching ears, to suit their itching ears, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say, oh, it does say that, to say what their itching ears want to hear. To say what their itching ears want to hear. And, you know, think about it. As human beings, we, we want to go to places that we hear things that make us feel good, right? That encourage us, that strengthen us, that, you know, I, I want to I go places and hear things that make me feel good, that encourage me. I don't like to be challenged. I don't like to change. I don't, I don't like to have sin in my life identified. This is, this is a, a roundabout way of saying what Paul is saying to Timothy, that people are going to go to places and gather around them teachers that tell them what they want to hear, not what they need to hear, what they want to hear. And, and I feel like as the church in, in America has, has lost a passion for the word of God. And, and we need to get back to the word of God. We need to be people of the word. You know, the Bible says that we, don't, we shouldn't be conformed to the patterns of this world. But we should be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That happens by the word of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so uh, we need to be people of the word. And what happens also when we're, we're not people of the word, we become more apt to be okay with all kinds of sin around us and all kinds of sin in our lives. We talked about that with the church last week. We're just, oh, it's okay. Oh, it's okay. Let them do, they're gonna, let them do what they want to do. You know, it's okay, and, and we just sort of let down our guard little by little because the Word of God is no longer our standard. It's our opinion. It's our culture. That becomes our standard, and that's a problem, right? So we become tolerant of sin. We become uh, little by little more comfortable with sin happening around us and in us. In verse 3 of this letter to the church, Jesus says this, remember, so after he says, everyone thinks you're alive, but you're really dead, wake up, chapter, or verse 3 says this, remember therefore what you have received and heard, hold it fast and repent. Now listen, literally every one of these letters except one that Jesus has spoke, this is the fifth one now we're covering, the fifth one we're covering, every letter has had that word repent in it. Every letter. So we've talked about it. Jesus has said, he's saying here in this verse, you've already been taught, you already know. But the problem is, you're not living it out. That's what he's saying to his church in Sardis. You already, you already know, but, but you're just not living it out. The word of God doesn't have high priority in your life anymore. It goes on to say in verse 3, it says, But if you don't wake up, I will come like a thief, and you do not know at what time I will come to you. That does not sound like good news to me. Jesus is not saying, I am a thief. But he's saying, I will, I will do what needs to be done to take away the things that you don't hold dear to you. So it's speaking of judgment. You know, there is a day 
again, that we will, like I said last week, we will stand before Jesus. And I want that to be a glorious day for all of us in this room, for our family members. I want it to be a day where we stand, uh, you know, we, we stand, rep- we having represented Jesus on this earth. You know, no, no hidden sin. You know, the Spirit of God has been working in our lives, changing us, drawing us to Him, making us more like Him. Nothing to hide. Nothing to hide before God, but we stand shameless because we have, we have uh, benefited from the shed blood of Jesus Christ over our lives. Amen? And, and we live wholeheartedly. We didn't leave anything like a, a football term or a baseball term would be, uh, don't leave anything on the field. Meaning, give it your all while you have the opportunity. We gave it our all while we had the opportunity. And so we don't want Jesus to come as a thief in our lives. Amen? <laughs> But here's the reality. Most of us don't change because change is hard, right? Most of us don't change our ways. This is what Jesus is saying to Sardis. You need to change your ways. We don't change our ways unless, un, uh, unless real pain is involved, right? There's something usually, you probably heard the phrase, they need to hit rock bottom before change happens. Well, unless pain is involved, a lot of times change doesn't happen. Right? I don't, I don't want to hit rock bottom in my life. I, I, I hate to see he, people hit rock bottom. We could, we could heed the words of Jesus to this church in Sardis and say, wow, I'm going to learn from that. I, there's a lot I know. There's, a, there's little that I've applied to my spiritual life. I'm going to start doing what I know. I'm going to start walking this out. I'm going to start living this out to be, uh, to be different. Because I, I don't want real pain involved. Uh, we don't pray until we're desperate, right? We don't cry out to God until there's no other hope, right? It's typical. But, but I, I want to press into God, and we don't, we, we don't repent unless we realize there's no other way. And truly, the first thing we should do is repent before God because it's about this relationship that we have with him. And we don't want, want that hindered. Here's the last one that I'll share with you. So I talked about the, the spirit leaving the building, passion for prayer. Um, there's less love for the word of God. Here's the last thought related to the autopsy of a dying church. We stopped taking risks for the gospel. Many people will say risk or faith is spelled R-I-S-K. You know, um, we have a school of ministry that's now in the third year. And I long for days when people come to me and say, I sense, sense of God, a call of God for me to be a pastor and be trained that way. I long for days when, when people who are in the school or graduating say, God's telling me I'm going to be a missionary to the nations. Or I'm going I'm to minister to the poor in our city. Or I'm going to, um, you know, be used mightily of God. I, I long for those days that, you know, people are willing to not just take that first step because risk is really taking that first step when we don't know what the second step is. When God hasn't yet revealed that second step to us. Like, sometimes we need to know everything. We need to, uh, front to back, A to Z, we need to know everything before we do anything with God. And faith is, is calling us to take those steps, calculated, wise, under counsel, led by the Spirit, but sometimes you're not going to get the answer until you take that first step. Peter did not know he would stay on top of that water until he stepped out on the water. He risked, he risked going down and going down deep in the middle of a storm. 
But he took that first step. He took that first step. That is, is a demonstration of the faith that God is calling us to. And just think about the cost. You know, um, for some of us in this room, a risk for us is sharing the gospel. Uh, this could be a whole separate point of conversation as to what is the autopsy of a dying church. But when people stop sharing the gospel, it's because they're afraid or because they don't have a passion for the lost. But let me tell you about the lost. The lost are your kids and my kids and, and my family members and your family members and our neighbors and our coworkers. Uh, we, we've lost... Uh, we, we've lost somehow a passion for people that one day will enter eternity apart from Jesus. And so when we talk about risk, it's the risk is, but what if they don't like what I say? What if, what if they reject me? What if they laugh at me? What if they don't? What if their life is forever changed? What if, what if a generation or an entire family is impacted by hearing the gospel? You see what I mean? Like there's, the risk is there may be some opposition, but the benefits, the potential benefits could be life change for many, many, even thousands of people. Amen, Amen to that, right? I mean, God has an amazing plan and he wants to use us. He wants to use us. I, I want to finish this, this uh, passage up in the next two or three minutes. He goes on to say in Revelation 3, 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. They are worthy. Uh, you know, these are, these are people that held on, that keep pressing in. It, it didn't matter how comfortable the church around them were, they kept pressing into God. They, they wanted more of God. They kept crying out for God. They kept believing for the things of God, the promises of God to be fulfilled. The, they, didn't, they didn't get impacted by the, the, the mentality that, let's just, hey, we've got it made. We don't have to worry. Everything's okay. They weren't impacted by that mentality. They kept going after the things of God. And it says, they will walk with me dressed in white. Come on. White represents purity. When you think of a, a bride walking down the aisle, it's, it's, it, the representation is purity, wholeness, you know, before God. Purity, you know, having been washed by the blood of Jesus. That's the purity, dressed in white, for they are worthy. And he goes on to say, and I thought it was funny, Cal, that you mentioned victory. Um, this wasn't planned, but this is in the verse. It says, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. In essence, there's still hope, right? Even though the entire church of Sardis, except a few, uh, had soiled their clothes, they weren't, we, they weren't representing the righteousness and purity of Christ, there's still hope. Like, they can turn back to God and get in on that, get in on that opportunity to walk with Jesus, be dressed in white, and be considered worthy. What a, what a great opportunity. But then there's this verse that I want to take uh, a minute to talk about because this verse can be controversial. Or this, the back portion of this verse in chapter five, verse 5. It says, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. He said, I'll never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. 
Now, he's speaking to the people that are victorious, right? He's speaking to the people that have overcome, that were conquerors, that were, were walking in victory. Now, I used to use this verse with the mindset or the mentality, like, look, you can lose your salvation. And there's still a lot of proponents of that. Like, you can be saved, and then you could have your, and have your name written in the book of life, and then you could have it erased, if you mess up. I don't think, as I've studied this a real lot, that that's what Jesus is getting at. You see, this is in the section of the letter that Jesus is making a promise. He's making a promise to his church. And in promises, let, let, me, let me give you a, an analogy. Would you say to your kid, you know, if you're good and clean your room, I'm not going to beat you anymore. Or would you say, hey, if you're good and clean your room, we'll go out for ice cream tonight. Think about it. Would you, would you use a threat to be a blessing to somebody? Probably not. It's not normal, is it? Jesus is in the middle of a promise. Jesus is in the middle of saying something encouraging to his church. And what he's saying is the victorious ones... In essence, if I could reword it the way I understand it, now I'm not the end authority. The Bible's the end authority, okay? This is the way I interpret it and understand it. If I could, if I could paraphrase what I think Jesus is saying, he's saying, for those who walk in victory, for those who walk in victory and, and overcome the challenges that we just presented, a dying church, a sleeping church, all this all this comfortableness, if you overcome, if you're an overcomer and you walk in the victory that I've been made available to you, you'll walk with me forever. You'll be with me forever. You'll be clothed in white. You'll be, you'll be declared faithful and nothing ever, ever, ever can change that. That's how it's written in the Greek. I'll, I will never, ever, ever blot out your name from the book of life. Now, the, the flip side is people... Read that, which I did, and interpret as it's, it's not what Jesus is saying. It's what Jesus is not saying. What is Jesus not saying? He's, he's not, uh, what didn't he say? What is implied through what he said? Is, well, if you're not victorious, your name's going to be blotted out of the book of life. I, I want to share with, with you one verse, and then we'll close this message. Because I think this is very important to talk to you about. Revelation chapter 17, verse 8. And there's other references to the book of life. And I'm just going to look at the second half of that verse. It's a big verse. But it starts off talking about the beast and people who bow down to the beast and all that stuff. Um, but he says, in the second half of Revelation 17, he says, The inhabitants of the earth, verse 8, The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world. Now listen, God, your name, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your name was written in the book of life from the creation of the world. Before you ever gave your name to Jesus, or your life to Jesus, before you ever you know, said, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life, your name was written in the book of life. God knew. God foreknew. God knows the beginning from the end. God's omniscient. He knows everything. 
So if your name was in there, knowing that you would give your life to him, do you think he would erase it? I don't think he would. Do I believe people can lose their salvation? I believe people can turn away from God willingly. I believe that people maybe, perhaps, who, were, who maybe prayed a prayer but weren't authentically saved, um, some of them, I don't believe, will make it to heaven unless they change their ways and repent. You understand what I'm saying? But I, I don't want to use this verse as a threat when it's meant to be a promise. Amen? Amen. I think the message that we should be getting from these churches is when there's things in our lives that God is communicating to us, it's not, it's not okay to just brush it off and do nothing. It's important to repent. And there's times that in our lives, maybe we were doing things that we didn't realize required repentance, but the Spirit of God is active. He's working, and he's revealing things to us. And when he does, it is important for us to say, I'm sorry, Lord. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to turn from my ways, and I want to live for you. Would you stand to your feet as I close in prayer? Today, if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, today is a great day. He is the Savior of the world. He, he came to make you right with God, your life right with God. Because sin has separated. I just need you to give me one minute. Sin has separated all of mankind from God. Jesus came to correct that issue. He shed his blood so that we can receive forgiveness from our sins. And I want to encourage you, don't leave this place without surrendering your life to him. Talk to me personally. Come up. We'll have our ministry team up here, and you can come up right right now. But don't leave this place without a right relationship with God. He loves you. The Bible says we can love him because he first loved us. And he demonstrated his love for us. Even while we're sinners, Christ came and died for us. He loves you so much. And today's a great day to give your life to Jesus. Amen. I want to pray for the church as a whole as we close. Father, today, Father, we don't want to be a sleeping, slumbering, dead church. Father, we want to be a church that is alive, God. And we know that churches are not buildings. Churches are people. Father, churches are people who have called upon the name of Jesus. And so, Father, for every person in this room that knows you and loves you, God, I pray, Father, that we would be people that are quick to repent, quick to turn from our wicked ways, God, quick to turn to you, God. And Father, we would be people, Father, that, Lord, press into you, that are passionate for you and your word, God. And so we say, have your way in our lives, God. Speak to us, move in us, God. Challenge us, God, because we want more of you, God. And we say, have your way, God. We love you and we bless your name in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. We love you so much.